Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for your mercy. We confess we don't deserve it. We were sinners. We shook our fists in your face. We weren't ripe soil, but you made our hearts into ripe soil. And you sowed the seed and caused it to take root and brought forth fruit. Father, we thank you for all of these rich blessings, which none of us deserve, which none of us would have even asked for if you hadn't had grace on us. So, Father, we pray now that you would help us to see more of this mercy in your word. Open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. We ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, I received news of the death of Rachel Held Evans. Uh, Saturday morning while I was in California, if you're not familiar with that name, Rachel Held Evans, it's probably because you don't spend much time online, which is not a bad thing for you and your soul, I'm sure. But um, Rachel was a well-known former evangelical Christian who was a bit of a gadfly over the years on social media. She was, she had, was raised in conservative Christian home, but she came into adulthood and began to question the faith and, that she had, had inherited from her parents. And she went from questioning that faith to being an opponent of that faith and some of the core doctrines of the Christian faith. And she and I had more than our fair share of run-ins over the years. I am for biblical manhood and womanhood. She was famously against it. This is all out there on the internet if you want to go read it. It's in her book even that she wrote. But, um, but that's why it was kind of ironic that I received the news of her, her death while I was sitting in a session sponsored by the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, a, a conference we were having out in California. I was sitting on the front row of this conference when I received this text from Susan telling me what had happened, and we had been praying for Rachel and her family for a couple of weeks at that point since we had heard that she was um, really seriously ill. She was only 37 years old. She was married, and she had two young children, and, and I would encourage you to pray for her, her family that, that she leaves behind. Even though we had all these disagreements, though, it was really kind of a punch in the gut to receive this news for me. I never actually met her in person, but we were not strangers. In fact, in the New York Times obituary on her, it included these lines. It said this, Miss Evans fearlessly challenged tra traditional authority structures, which were often conservative and male. She would spar with evangelical men on Twitter, brazenly and publicly challenging their views of everything from human sexuality to politics to biblical inerrancy, end quote. That was from the New York Times obituary. And that was us. Uh, we had countless interactions and debates over the years. And I was doing a search on Saturday night just through my Twitter feed and read through some of all of these old threads that we had back and forth. And I'd forgotten about so many of them. They were all very direct, all really concerned fundamental issues of the faith. And we were just often at loggerheads with one another. But so, somewhere around 2014, 
I stopped following her. She stopped following me online. And it'd been, it, it's been kind of relatively quiet uh, for these last five years or so. But still, when I got news of her death last week, I was so grieved that, in large part, it, that so many of the foundational issues that we used to discuss, all of those issues are just left unresolved. And really, there's nothing left to do except to pray for those who, who were left behind, those precious kids and her husband. But um, there was another woman who wrote about Rachel's death, and I resonated deeply with what she said. Her name's Ann Kennedy. She's a pastor's wife, and uh, she wrote this. She says, It is we who are ephemeral, who go away in a night, who are a breath, a sigh. It is God and his perfect word who carry us on past the ashes of each ruined moment, but not the God of our own imagining, untethered from every jot and line of his holy and perfect word. We have to take him as he is. We have to trust that what he says about himself is true. It is enough to take us over the threshold of death and into everlasting life. Really what I began thinking about last week after I received this news was just the fact of life and death. The words of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 24 to 25 came to mind. It says this, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. That text is telling us that we are the ones who are grass. We're the ones that wither and who change, not God. He is absolute reality, the one with whom we have to do. And we bloody our feet when we kick against the goads of that truth. And what I think sometimes is that we let ourselves get so distracted by our lives that we never get around to thinking about our lives. I know that's a temptation that I often fall into personally. I get so busy, so fixated on what's right in front of me, like work and the kids, baseball practice, classes, going and teaching at a conference, whatever, I get so fixated that I can get distracted from thinking about the big things. And sometimes it takes an untimely death to snap me back to attention, to think about my own life and about how, to, how short it is and about whether I'm trying to be faithful to all that God has called me to be and to do. So, so I'll just ask you, do you ever find yourself in that kind of a rut? where you're not thinking about the big things anymore. Since last Saturday, I've been thinking a great deal about how ephemeral and fleeting we really are in our fallenness. I've been thinking about all of the idle words for which I'm going to have to give account to God one day. I've been thinking about all of the stupid and selfish things that I've done and said in my short 46 years. And I've been thinking about the fact that I'm, I'm not guaranteed any more years. This is why we read Psalm 39 at the beginning of this. Paul, uh, where the psalmist says this, Psalm 39, verses 4 to 6. The psalmist prays, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. 
Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Selah. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. When was the last time you prayed words like those found in Psalm 39? When was the last time you began to take account of your life and what it's really all about? If you haven't already, I want you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 11. Now, in my last message from 1 Corinthians 15, we were supposed to cover verses 1 through 11, but we failed to get to those last three verses. So this morning, we are finishing my last sermon, okay? And we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 11. But if you'll remember from last time, we, we saw that verses 1 through 2 are dealing with what the gospel requires of us. Verses 3 through 8 are dealing with what the gospel is. So Paul defines the gospel as Jesus Christ crucified and raised for sinners. But these last three verses are dealing with who the gospel is for. And in these three verses, Paul is really taking a deep dive into his own life. He's reflecting on his own life. And what we find is a man who is clear-eyed about who he is and about where he is going. And I think that we would do well to learn something about ourselves from Paul's reflection about himself. And there are three defining realities that Paul uh, gives to us about his life. And here they are. It's really simple. He talks about his own sin, so Paul's sin, God's grace, and one gospel. Paul's sin... God's grace in one gospel. That, these are the defining realities of his life. So the first thing here is in verse 9. It's Paul's sin. Look at verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, unwor unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Notice right at the very beginning of verse 9, there's that little word, for. That little word is signaling that verses 9 through 11 are an explanation of something that he said in verse 8. So we have to remind ourselves of what Paul said in verse 8. Paul, in verse 8, was explaining all the people that Christ had appeared to after his resurrection. And Paul concludes in verse 8 by saying this. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now notice that phrase, as to one untimely born. It's the title of this sermon. But what does Paul mean by this? Now in one sense, Paul's birth as an apostle is untimely in the sense that he wasn't called when all the other apostles were called. They were all called you know, around three years before Christ's death. Jesus calls Paul to be an apostle well after um, Jesus' resurrection and ascension. So perhaps we might think of Paul's birth as an apostle as untimely in, in that sense, that it was just you know, different from all the other apostles. But that word that Paul uses for untimely born is actually a word that means something like abnormally born when it's used in the Old Testament. It's, it's referring to a birth that violates the normal period of gestation for an infant. So you got to think through the, the metaphor here of birthing. All right, And this is somebody who's abnormally born. In the Old Testament, this word refers to actually to miscarriages and, and to abortion. So if that's the meaning, Paul's basically saying, 
Last of all, he appeared to me as to one who was born like a miscarriage. If that's the meaning, then we know that in this metaphor, there's something terribly wrong with the infant that's born in this case. Because the infant is born in such a way that results in the death of the child. In fact, some scholars believe that Paul is really just taking up an insult that had been hurled at him by his opponents. In any case, it points, uh, the point relates to some deficiency in that which is born. So do you see what's going on here? Paul is using this expression, which may have been an insult that people used against him. Oh, you're an apostle? You're a miscarriage. He's, he's using that expression to point to a deficiency in himself. There's something strange and unexpected about the fact that he, of all people, was called to be an apostle. There was something really deficient about him that made him the last person on earth that you would expect to become a follower of Jesus, much less become an apostle. What was it about him? that made him like a miscarriage. Something like, what is wrong with this guy that he is now a follower of Jesus? That's what verse 9 is all about. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now, by least, Paul means lowest in status among all the apostles. The lowest. By unworthy, he means that he doesn't measure up to the, the job description of an apostle. He's not competent for the work which he has been called to do, which means of all the people that you would call to be an apostle to the Gentiles, of all the people that you would think might carry the gospel to the remotest part of the earth, Paul is the last person that you would pick to do it. Why? Because of that last phrase in verse 9, because I persecuted the church of God. Now you see here, Paul is trying to accent what he believes his great sin is. Before Paul was an apostle, he was Saul of Tarsus. He was a Pharisee. He was doing the opposite of spreading Christianity. He was trying to destroy Christianity by destroying Christians. He had given his life to this. And you get the sense that Paul never got over the true importance of the words that he heard from Jesus' own mouth when Paul first met Jesus on the Damascus Road. You remember what Jesus said to Saul? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? No, that's not what he said, is it? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus made it as personal as he could with Paul when he humiliated him and saved him on that Damascus road. It's as if he is saying, don't you know what you're doing, Saul? Whatever you have done to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it unto me. You're not just trying to destroy these Christians, Saul. You are trying to destroy me. Paul never got over the fact that in his zeal for Jewish law and tradition, he had missed the point of Jewish law and tradition. So much so that he tried to destroy the very fulfillment of the promises that had been given to him and all the other Jews in the Old Testament. It was everything that they were waiting for was being fulfilled in Jesus, and he was trying to destroy it. He missed it so bad that in his zeal for God, he was actually warring against God. 
So you know what this means? It means that Paul had a real good view of himself apart from the grace of Christ. This is Paul reflecting on his own life, what his own life means, and what it was apart from the grace of Christ. He describes it also in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verses 13 through 16. He says it this way. He said, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of all. Why does he think he was the foremost of all? Because he was a persecutor and blasphemer. He says this in verse 16, and yet for this reason, for this reason, because I'm the foremost of sinners, for that reason, I found mercy in order that in me, in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Do you see what Paul is getting at here? Paul is saying that I was so awful that if God can save me, he can save anybody. Why do you think Paul was so fearless when he was traveling to all those Gentile cities, preaching the gospel from place to place to people who time and again were trying to kill him? Have you ever had anybody try to kill you after you share the gospel with them? Paul would have people try to kill him in certain cities. He would leave the city, and then you know what he would do? He would go back to the city and preach again. How do you do that? Where do you get the gumption to think that those people, I've already shaken the dust off my feet, I'm going to go back in there and preach again. Those are pretty hard cases if they try to stone you when you preach the gospel to them. How does he, how does he have the confidence to come back in the face of that kind of opposition? Because he didn't think that those people he was preaching to were nearly as hard of a case as he was. Paul says, I'm like a miscarriage, all right? Christ gave life to me, me. These Gentiles with rocks in their hands trying to kill me are nothing compared to what I was when Jesus found me on my way to Damascus, red face and spitting out threats against God's people. See, do you see what Paul's teaching us here when he's talking about himself apart from grace? He's teaching us humility. You know why? Because it doesn't really matter who's the biggest sinner in the world. Paul, Paul says, I'm the foremost sinner in the world. It doesn't really matter who the biggest sinner in the world is. What does matter is that you and I ought to feel like we're the biggest sinners in the world. It ought to feel like I am the biggest sinner in the world to me in this sense. The sin that ought to grieve me most is not that guy's sin or that gal's sin or those people's sins over there. The rebellion that ought to grieve me the most is my own rebellion against God. And that means that the thing that ought to thrill me the most is that in spite of all my garbage, the arm of the Lord is not too short to save me. It ought to be astonishing that he saved me above anybody else. 
If you are here this morning and you feel like your sins are so awful and grievous that you can't imagine God would ever have anything to do with you, I've got good news for you. Join the club. That's all of us in this room. Every single one of the members of this church who have come to the same realization about ourselves too. And what we have found is the good news that God doesn't leave it to us to save ourselves. He knows that we are desperate. So he came to us in the person of his son, his son who lived the life that we should have lived but didn't, and then died the death but we should have died. He was crucified on a Roman cross to pay the penalty that we deserve for our sin. Three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead to offer us eternal life. That's the good news of the gospel. And none of us were worth it. We aren't good enough to earn any of this. God loves us out of sheer mercy. You will never work your way out of the hole you're in. Jesus did all of the work for us and offers it to us as a gift. All you have to do, to do is to receive the gift. And you do that by turning away from your sin and by trusting in Jesus Christ alone to save you. That's it. But Paul is staggered by this mercy that's come to him in Christ because he's very realistic about his own life and about what he was apart from grace. And in his mind... He thinks that he was the worst. I'm the worst. And yet Jesus saved me. And he saved me to show me and to show everybody else that if I can get saved, anybody can get saved. So the first thing he talks about there in verse 9 is, is Paul's sin. But the second thing is verse 10. He talks about God's grace. Everybody look at verse 10. Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Now, sometimes people refer to this verse as the Papa the Sailor Man verse uh, in the New Testament because Paul says, you know, I am what I am. I know that pop culture reference is probably lost on everybody because I think Popeye disappeared around like 1970 or something, but that was his catchphrase. But long before Popeye was a thing, um, you know, this was Paul's catchphrase. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, the question is, what is he referring to when he says, I am what I am? Well, Paul's referring to what he said in verse 9. He said, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. So he's referring to the fact that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. So to understand the importance of this, you have to know what an apostle is. Now, the, the apostles were not just Jesus' band of merry men. The, the apostles were a specific group of men that Jesus selected for a specific office and for a specific purpose. A purpose really that would only be fully realized <clears throat> after Jesus had ascended to heaven and the Spirit was given to the church. You may remember in John chapter 15 and verse 16, Jesus looked at his apostles and Judas, actually at this point, was gone. He'd gone out to betray him. And Jesus looks at the apostles. He says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. 
Jesus chose the apostles to bear fruit, which means to preach the gospel in such a way that people hear it and get saved. He also gave these apostles special promises that would ensure the integrity of what they preached. <coughs> Excuse me. He gave them promises to ensure the integrity of, of the message that they, that they would preach. He says in John 14, verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you, apostles, all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Chapter six, uh, John 16, verse 13 through 15. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. So Jesus promised the apostles that he would give them supernatural ability to remember everything that he taught them. Because he was expecting them to go teach this to others. And he, he also promised that he would, through the Spirit, supernaturally guide them into all truth. That is not a promise for every believer. That is a promise for the apostles in particular. It's why we have the New Testament. This is a sound word because it's a Spirit-inspired word. We know it's a Spirit-inspired word because it comes from apostles. And Jesus promised the apostles to lead them into all truth. That's why we have a New Testament and why we trust it. Jesus promised to supernaturally guide these men into all the truth. And Paul is saying now in 1 Corinthians 15, by the grace of God, I am one of those apostles. This is an unbelievable position that he's been called into. He went from being a guy who wanted to destroy apostles to being a guy who was an apostle. Can you imagine the, the kind of reversal that that would have been? He not only is saved by Jesus, he is also at once called by Jesus to be an authoritative bearer of the gospel. <clears throat> he is led into all truth by the Spirit. Indeed, we have 13 books from him in the New Testament because of this. So it's a miracle that happened in, in Paul's life. He's advancing the faith that he was once trying to destroy. He is becoming a foundation of the faith that he once tried to destroy. But Paul is really keen here to insist that his position as an apostle only happened for one reason, and one reason alone. It's the grace of God. The grace of God is referring to the unmerited favor of God towards sinners. A favor that results in a gift to that sinner. A gift that that sinner did not deserve or even want. And in Paul's case, we know that he didn't want this because God's grace not only saved him, but, also, but it also made him an apostle. And Paul was not cooperating with God when this happened. Paul was working against God when Jesus bowled him over on that Damascus road. So Paul saw his new status and calling totally as God's doing, which means it's totally of God's grace in his life. It wasn't something he was looking for. He came to faith because God went looking for him. Paul says in Galatians 2.15, God set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. He was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. 
Romans 15, verses 15 through 16. But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Roman, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and verse 10. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building upon it. Paul always viewed his position as a matter of grace, which is why he's astonished that the Corinthians don't view their position as a matter of grace at times. At least they don't behave that way. Do you remember what he said in chapter 4? He's writing to the Corinthians about their arrogance and divisions, and he says to them in chapter 4, verse 7, What do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Paul knows that he had nothing except what God had given to him. And so he can say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. What do I have that I didn't receive? Nothing. By God's grace alone, he is saved and he's an apostle. But then he also says this in verse 10. He says, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul says that God's grace toward him was not in vain. Now, do you know what in vain means? In vain means, um, it means uh, without purpose or result. So to experience God's grace in vain would mean to experience it with no effective change in your heart or in your life. But Paul says, that's not what happened with me. When I met Jesus, my life was transformed. Everything changed. And the proof of it was in the pudding. How do you know? He says in verse 10, His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Harder than any of who? Well, the other apostles. He says he's the least of the apostles, but I worked harder than any of them did. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. The reason that we, we know God's grace worked in Paul is because Paul worked after receiving grace. We are not saved by our works, but we are saved unto works. That is Paul's message. That is the example in his own life. That is the example and the message that he preached to everyone. Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 to 10. We know this text. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast about it. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is Paul's story. This is our story if we are Christians. You can't get grace by your good works, but neither can you have grace without good works following. Your good works are not the cause of grace. They are the consequence of grace. That's what Paul is saying here is true of himself. He worked harder than any other apostle at what Jesus had commissioned him to do. All the other apostles, you know, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Peter, the other apostles, they have wives. They have homes. Not me. I'm itinerant. I'm gone all the time. I'm being stoned from place to place, chased around from city to city, all these Gentile cities. I'm working harder than any of them. But he's not saying, 
yay me, I'm awesome. <laughs> That's not what he's saying. He's saying all of that work that I'm doing is not evidence of how awesome I am. That is evidence of God's gracious favor toward me. It's evidence of how, God, how awesome God is. Do you view your own situation in this way? Do you view your own life as a Christian, your good works, anything that has come into your life that's good since you've become a Christian, do you view that as a consequence of grace or as a cause of grace in your life? Do you view your relationship with God as, what do you have, God, that you did not receive from me? Because I'm pretty incredible and awesome. Or do you view your relationship as, what do I have that I did not receive from you, God? You know, in his classic work, Mere Christianity, there's this famous passage from C.S. Lewis. He's talking about this theme. He said, he said it this way. He said, every faculty that you have, your power of thinking or of moving, your limbs from moment to moment is given you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not, in a sense, his own already. It is like a small child going to its father and saying, Daddy, give me six pence to buy you a birthday present. It is all very nice and proper, but only an idiot would think that the father is six pence to the good on the transaction. The father does not become richer because of what the child gives to him. Because what the child gave to him is only what the father gave him first. But how often do we think that God is sixpence to the good when we render back to him what was already his? We have nothing to offer God. What we do offer him is already his. We make no real contributions to him. The grace flows all our way and none of it flows his way. Our contribution to salvation is that we got lost. He did everything else. Paul says that this is the defining reality of this life, of his life. And it ought to be the defining reality of, of our lives too. It's hard to be arrogant when you've come to terms with what you are apart from Christ and what you are with Christ. You are a beggar who has received grace. Who can boast in himself if that is true? All you can do is boast in God. You remember 1 Corinthians 1, verses 30 and 31? And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So the defining realities of Paul's life, he talks about Paul's sin, talks about God's grace, and the last thing is he talks about one gospel. Look at verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So he says, whether then it was I or they, who is this they that he's referring to? Well, in verse 9, he called himself the least of the apostles. In verse 10, he says that he worked harder than all of the other apostles. So it's clear that the they in verse 10 is referring back to the apostles. So what's he saying here? He's saying, he's confirming that he and the other apostles teach and preach the same gospel message. He says it's a message that we preach, which means he and the other apostles are preaching this same message. 
This one message is the one that the Corinthians have received and accepted. What's the message? It's the message that he shared in verses 3, verse 5, that Christ Jesus was crucified for sinners and uh, crucified for sinners, and he's been raised. That message is not Paul's gospel alone. It's the gospel of all the apostles because it's the gospel Jesus revealed to them. There's not a Peter gospel and a Paul gospel and a John gospel and, and all this garbage that you hear sometimes from biblical scholars. There's one gospel and they all believe the same one, okay? It's the only gospel that can and will save sinners. And Paul is taking it for granted that this is common ground between them. Now, in our next message, this common ground is going to be absolutely important for understanding the rest of chapter 15. We're going to bracket that and save it till next time. But he's assuming that this gospel is common ground. They're all holding on to this. Jesus Christ crucified and raised. So here's the question. Is that our common ground? Do we believe that this gospel we have received, that God can and will save sinners through it? Do we believe that this gospel we've received that God can and will save sinners like Paul through it. The very people that we would deem to be the hard cases. Do we believe that? Some of you have heard me talk about um, Rosaria Butterfield's testimony before. Rosaria was a um, lesbian woman who had been in a long-time relationship with another woman. She was a tenured professor at Syracuse University. She specialized in feminist and queer theory in her writings. She was an open opponent of Christianity, and in particular of what she saw in the public square as the Christian right. But the Lord brought into her life an old Presbyterian pastor and his wife, and they befriended her. They invited her to their home. Over a period of about a year, she was in their home having dinner and talking about spiritual things. This pastor and his wife would listen to her objections to the faith and they would try to answer those objections as best they could. But mainly, they just loved her and accepted her and, and befriended her. No strings attached. And after about a year of this, it didn't happen all at once, after about a year of this, Rosaria is reading her Bible and she becomes unmoored from her life as a tenured lesbian professor at Syracuse University who hates Christianity. She finally came to the realization that Jesus is exactly who this pastor was telling her that he is. And even though it cost her everything, her job and her relationships, her livelihood, she decided that she'd rather have Jesus than her sin. That was about 20 years ago when that happened. Now she's a pastor's wife and a homeschooling mom living in South Carolina following Christ. Now, to most people... When that pastor wrote to her initially, to most people, Rosaria would have appeared as the least likely candidate to become a Christian. She's the definition of a hard case. In fact, there was hardly anybody who was more antagonistic to the faith than Rosaria was. She was among those who, who were arrayed against Christians in our culture. But here's what I love about her story. Salvation is not about what we think is plausible. Salvation is about what God is willing to do. And God decided to save her through the ordinary witness of an old pastor and his wife. It may look like the world is going 
to hell in a handbasket. But you need to remember something. God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And in his sovereign plan, he has purchased for himself people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And it may look like Satan is running this world, but it only looks that way. When God reaches down and he plucks a sinner like Rosaria from the fire or like Saul of Tarsus from the fire, that is God looking at the enemy and saying, I can plunder your fortress whenever I feel like it, whenever I want, and there is nothing you can do about it. I want that to be an encouragement to us this morning because guess what? We're living in dark times, but we serve a God who loves to do surprising things. We serve a God who loves sinners and who designs to save them and who wants to use us in the process. We have got to start relating to our non-Christian neighbors and coworkers and family members as if God loves sinners and wants them to be saved and can save them. We've got to start praying like crazy that God would leverage those relationships to plunder the devil's house. And we've got to learn to pray and expect that God is who he says he is, the sovereign of the universe, because that is who he says he is. The truth is the defining realities of Paul's life, his sin, God's grace, and that one gospel that God brought to him and saved him, those ought to be the defining realities of our lives. We know who we are. We are sinners, and this life is short, but God's grace is big and good. And this one gospel is our silver bullet that he's given us. And he is still mighty to save and to bring sinners to himself. And if he can save us, he can save anybody. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for this word. And I do pray that you would make us fruitful, make us faithful gospel proclaimers, make us happy gospel proclaimers, in the face of opposition. Help us to be awestruck by your mercy towards us. Help us never to get over it. And Lord, may that worship overflowing from thankful hearts overflow into gospel fruitfulness. Father, would you do that? And Lord, if there is any here now who don't know you, they're not saved, they haven't trusted you, Lord, would you let them know that this message is for them? And that even though they may feel their sins have risen up over their heads, God's arm is, is not too short to save them. Lord, would you bring them to yourself and save them even now? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.